A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to Book Nook, where the lore hounds your guides to the archipelago of Earthsea. I'm David. I'm John. And I'm Marilyn. And this is part three of our coverage of the fourth book of the Earthsea series, Tahanu, by Ursula K. Le Guin. In this podcast, we're going to be discussing chapters 11 through 14, the conclusion of the book. We will start off with some spoiler-free conversation about our thoughts on this section in general. Following a quick break, we will move into a deeper conversation about the plot and major themes presented. While we enjoy discussing the book amongst ourselves, we also want to hear from you. Send us an email to book at thelorehounds.com or visit us at our website. And there you can either use the contact form or leave us a voicemail. And uh, that website is thelorehounds.com. And we also have a Discord server. We'll put a link in the show notes below, and we've got a channel set up there just to talk about uh, all the Earthsea books and all the topics and things that we're covering uh, and all the other shows that we're covering and, and all the other projects. So join us over there. It's a great community. We have lots of fun. And as David said, a dedicated channel just for Earthsea conversations, but I'm sure you'll enjoy all the others as well. So check out the link in the show notes below. For ad-free versions of this and all of our other podcasts, please check us out at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. We'll share more about our Patreon as well as scheduling notes for us and our affiliates at the end of the podcast. Also, if you have a moment, we would love it if you would share your thoughts with us about the podcast. Ratings and reviews are what help others find the podcast, and we're grateful for any reviews because they help us make better podcasts, too. All right, gang, here we are at the end of our three-part coverage of Teanu. Uh, who knew? Uh, I think we could have probably intuited. I didn't, I, you know, I was just listening today uh, on a podcast to a podcast about free will versus determinism. And I think mm -hmm. deterministically speaking, it was always inevitable that we were going to cover <laughs> <laughs> this one book with this much coverage. Well, Marilyn uh, sat you down in person and said... You're gonna. You're, we're gonna do this in three <laughs> we're parts. We're three. Exactly. Don't don't argue with me. That said, what before I, we we get what into I said uh, was <laughs> you don't you realize we're gonna have to take three chunks to do this. Yes. I think that there were good said, chunks though. I'm really. Yes. I'm actually really glad that we did it this way. So thank you, Marilyn, for your suggestion, because it feels very natural to divide it this way. Mm -hmm. It did. Good. The internal breaks were, were good. That said, I think that's a good segue, John, because uh, you were not able to join us for part two. 
No, and... I was goat herding in the mountains, actually. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you're, you're taking a trip around the island on the king's ship. Mm-hmm. Right. So do you have uh, any thoughts or reactions to that section you'd like to touch on now or any thoughts that came out from the podcast since you, I believe you two did an excellent job on part two. I I don't want to belabor it because I think that you, you two hit all the things that I would have said. Um, I will say, I don't know if I'll be able to quite fully divide part two and part three in my head right now because I read them together, but I vaguely know where they end. And I'm sure Marilyn's recap will help me. Uh, figure out where Fresh. I'm allowed to talk about tonight. Right. As far as I'm concerned, we can talk about all of it. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That's right? true. It's yeah, we can just yeah. be like a wrap up. Yeah. Yeah. That said, let's touch base really quick on our coverage that we've done in the past and sort of what we've got in front of us. John, you want to walk us through where the folks can uh, find the different segments and the different books and stuff? We've covered A Wizard of Earthsea, I think, in two parts. The Tombs of Atuan, I think, in one part. Farthest Shore, in two parts. And here we are on our third part of Tehanu. We will also be doing uh, Tales from Earthsea and The Other Wind sometime in the new year, uh, early in the new year. But for now, you can get all of the main books of this series covered on our feed. So head to thelorehounds.com, just search Earthsea, and you should be fine. Something we teased earlier, too, was a book uh, written by Professor John Plotz, who wrote sort of a uh, interesting personal reaction to Earthsea and to Ursula K. Le Guin, as well as analyzing a bit of the books. And I've been in touch with him by email, and we're going to be coordinating with him to have uh, to interview him and have a conversation with him about uh, his book and and his thoughts on Ursula K. Le Guin and all that she's done for this genre. We kind of put pause on it because we wanted to finish Tehanu because in his book, he talks about Tehanu and we didn't want to spoil ourselves. And plus it got busy summer, blah, blah, blah. So we're going to bring that uh, back online and that'll happen sometime in uh, the next few months when we get uh, schedules coordinated. So keep your ears out for that. I want to add to that, that I don't think that this book is very spoilable on a plot point. I think this book hmm. is much more about the ride than the destination. Uh-huh. Interesting. This is very much a characterization book. Roll into your hot takes then on this, yes. on your initial takes. I mean, I, I really love this book. This was by far my favorite of the series. I think that it is it is much more of the kind of book that I pick up just on my own. You know, The Wheel of Time, The Lord of the Rings, things that mm-hmm. let you journey with the characters and and – even if you're not going far in distance, you are going a very great distance internally. And that's what we saw these characters do in this book. I won't spoil where they go, even though, like I said, I don't think that the plot really is as central to this as the characterization and hmm. as the the character arcs. But I think that, that Le Guin really perfected her character building, her character development in this book. And it was so great to hear a different voice. I mentioned that I did the last couple of books on audiobook and they switched from Robert Ingalls to, I 
don't remember the name of the the narrator of this one, but it's a woman. And mm-hmm. hearing that voice come through, I think, really emphasizes that Le Guin is feeling, I think, to herself, based on what you were saying in the last podcast about her writings about Tahanu. But also it, it comes through that she's feeling like she's shedding a lot of the shackles on her own voice in this book. And mm-hmm. I really appreciated that. I, I was blown away by how great this book was without a lot of plot. And I, I'm really looking forward to talking about it with you all. Uh, I will say right up here too, these are our spoiler free thoughts and we'll take a break and then we'll get into spoilers after. So just in case you didn't catch that, we'll, we'll, we won't say anything if you just wanted to hear our, our general reactions, if you haven't read it all, I'm actually going to, exercise a little bit of prerogative here and go next with my takes because I want to, I guess, be argued with a little bit. Uh, <laughs> and I don't want to leave it on the a negative note because I want to bring, <laughs> I want to end our conversation on a, on a higher note. I, what I feel really kind of not inspired or a little bit let down by the ending of this book. Mm-hmm. And it there was a there was a big tonal shift, I guess, in the denouement of it at all, or the climax of it all, at the end. And it goes, it doesn't go until like right just till the end when we get a really big thing happening and a big resolution all very quickly. And some questions are answered, but left even more ambiguous. And for me, it. It didn't, it didn't, it, it, it seemed very, and this happened, then this happened, and this happened, and then this person said this, and then I'm done. And I'm like, wait a minute, where did, there's no mechanics here. There's no explanation. There's no uh, realization. It's, it's ended by, there's a sort of an external set of circumstance that occurs to resolve it very quickly. And I, it really left me uh, dissatisfied. Up until then, in the the last part for our part two, I, I was really engaged and, and interested. And wow, this is great! And where are we going? And the first part, I think, chapters eleven, twelve. I think it's really just chapter fourteen, where she just wraps it all up, and I was left bewildered. Um, so I guess I'm I'm. This is not my favorite in, in terms of, of enjoyment factor. I'm glad I read it and I'm, I'm glad I've taken it on board sort of the nutrition that she's offering here in, in terms of uh, gender and identity and these questions. And, and it's made me think uh, a lot about that and, you know, m- myself and then reflecting on my own past and my own journey around identity and questions of, of this nature but from a storytelling standpoint in, in a, that entertainment value, it, like I said, it left me very bewildered and I really don't know how to, I, I, I'm, I feel, I'm feeling kind of critical about it too. So I, I'm, I'm open to having the, this conversation when we get into the spoiler full, the spoiler full, spoiler free, the, <laughs> on the other side of the break, when we talk spoilers, where we can, we can grapple with this a little bit more. You know, I think this might be a preference thing, and and I will say that around chapter twelve, I was thinking to myself, we have not left the Shire plot wise. 
right? <laughs> sure. we just we are yes. just still yes. very much in setup mode. It feels like it yeah. does. It and, just goes and goes and goes. Yeah, and then it wraps up very quickly. You're correct. I love books like that. I read Vonnegut. That's like my favorite, like comfort read, and and uh, Discworld is the same way too. I think where mm. like everything is very much about the journey, and then at the very end, they're like, "All right, let's wrap it up," and that's fine with me. And and it's more fine with me in this story in in general. I think because of how de-emphasized the plot is for this. I think that it's just not the same kind of story as the first three, and that's okay with me. But 100%. I can see where if you're that. if you yeah. want more of the first story, it's certainly not that. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think I think it's fine that it's not the first three because that's not her. But at the same time, yeah, from a story mechanical standpoint and from a I, I'm not trying to I'm not saying an entertainment value in a in a cheap way, because to be entertained is to be engaged and interested and in, in, in it, it, it's a type of fuel for me to be engaged in the story. So, uh, but yeah, I totally agree. This is a very, very different and it's supposed to be a different book. Marilyn, I'm sorry. I mm-hmm. stepped on you. There. No, no, that's fine. Please. Um, what's your, your take? I, I have, I have some writings from her that address this very issue. Okay, good, good. So when we get there, um, she I have, has some things to say and explain. And I have very much avoided all of the contextual information and the historical information. Cause I really wanted to sure. come in if, if, previous listeners remember i read this when i was in my uh, 20s and uh, i had a strong reaction to it and so i wanted to come back to it as mm-hmm. as who i am now with that history and go okay tell me now what you were trying to tell me then and and so i don't want to i didn't want to read any of the the contextualizing information so so that i was dealing with myself in the moment as i'm reading the book Sure. Can I can I just before I lose this thought, <laughs> just uh, bring something in. When I was reading this, I realized that I think that the first three Earthsea books are very clearly written by a younger person because they are all about the adventure and the the glory that you can get to and the the impressive things that you can do and the feats. And then you get to this book. And really what this is, is how do I learn to be comfortable in the ordinary? And what is Mm. the power of the ordinary? And that's beautiful to me. And as someone who's turning 30 this year, I long (laughs) to be ordinary, but also fulfilled. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that's a really beautiful way to evolve this series. We're done adventuring. We did our 20s. We're moving on. And as a person of 54 years of age of outing (laughs) ourselves here, uh, I am very much in a, in a, a very uh, non-adventurous life right now. I've, I've done my adventuring and I have adventured and I feel satisfied with my adventures. And so I'm very much into tending the, you know, mending the fences, you know, working on our house making sure that our our daughter has a fun, healthy, safe environment that she can grow up in and and you know begin to challenge the world in, in on her terms. Um so I'm all about that. And chapter 14, I, I, I just didn't understand it in some ways. So but I, I am with you, John, on that regard of like, ah yes, this is 
normal life. I'm sewing the britches and I'm mending the fences. I'm like, oh yeah, I, I could see myself all over this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I've, I've been binging Doctor Who lately, so I'm going to bring in a quote here from the ninth doctor that I always liked. Uh, I believe it's, that's an ordinary person. That's the most important thing in creation. You know, like, <laughs> it, it's people want very spectacular stories out of their fantasy, but there's also a beauty in day in the life fantasy. And I think that this is kind of in between because you have a lot yes. of conflict, but you also, and, and you're going through this great journey internally for all of these characters, but really the goal is to settle into normalcy. That's the goal of all of these characters. And I, I really kind of love that. It's, it's beautiful. And I think it's also the goal of the author to put forward the normalcy, if you will, even as she is also putting forward um, the, the problems that normal people deal with that cannot necessarily be solved with the traditional heroics, if you will. Right. I was 35 when I first read this and it helped me through some really tough stuff and it frustrated me at the same time. Uh -huh. One of the things I said in, in my general reactions is I find the outcome both satisfying and frustrating in a way. So I think yep, my frustration, I see it in the line. Right there. <laughs> my, I think my frustration might not be the same as your frustration, David. Okay. But there is a reason for that. And she's quite honest and open about it. So when we get there, we'll get there and we'll talk about that. Yeah, I'm looking right. forward to it because it, it just felt very compressed in a, in a way. Sure. And I, and I don't, and yeah, so, so some, some illumination around that would be great. Well, otherwise, as, as, what did you think beyond, beyond that? Right. We've, we've been, we've been John stepping on you for the last 10 minutes. So Marilyn, please let us know what you think. Well, as, as one of our listeners said in, in discord channel, the clues are all there, but Indeed. you have to know how to look for them and see them. Mm-hmm. And then the denouement is something that you've been suspecting all along. And so when it happens, you are satisfied in that sense. You, you don't feel like it's out of the left field. You, you do understand what's happening. But they're very subtle clues. I did not get any of them the, my first read through. So I, too, was completely surprised by what happens in Chapter 14. Mm -hmm. um, and exhilarated and a little frustrated, which, again, I'll talk about when I get there. So, yeah, we're reading, we're talking about the end of Act 2 plus Act 3. And I think Act 2 ends um, when spring comes. can't remember exactly which chapter that is, but those who have read it will know. Um, this book contains some of the best conversations about gender and power I have ever read. And I think I've said that for all three of our <laughs> podcasts about it. Um, and it, it was it was revolutionary. It was saying the things that I sensed but could not put into words because it finds a path between two extremes. And I've already read some of her comments about that um, in previous episodes. You can go back and listen to that. Um, the lines that I love, nothing is ever wasted and better late than never. And those both come in one of my favorite parts of the book. And we finally understand the mystery of Theru and her power and who and what she is. 
So those are my observations. A, a part of the question is answered, but then there's so much that's left not answered. And that also frustrated me. Exactly. Because there's no, I'm like, wait, what, huh? And, yes. Yes. And, and the, yeah, there there were clues that were being um, uh, established all the way through, and I certainly had a sense of what was going to happen. And then it's like, yeah, but what do you mm-hmm. mean? It, what mm-hmm. uh, what do you mean? This is the mm-hmm. last chapter. I mean, come on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. There's no mechanical basis for this. There, there's nothing explained, and it just was frustrating. Yeah, very frustrating. But that also forces you to focus on the drama of the character development, right? Because if a bunch of crazy things started happening, that's the book. And because she only gives you a taste of it, the book is about the characters. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. I, I absolutely cannot argue with that. Um, and I guess the preceding events to the resolution are so wild. <laughs> And so, like, what is going on here? This is craziness. And then it's over. Then, you know, click, it's over. Uh, It's it's a big tonal shift as well. And so I think, you know, conversation, walking the woods and, you know, uh, fixing the spit rail fences and bringing in the sheep and having these conversations while you're spinning yarn, all great. And then radical tonal shift and immediate resolution and then giant questions. It's, it's so compressed and there's no, there's no elasticity in it. There's no space. There's no room to grow. And so because it's such a, it was such a shock for me, I I, I can't, it's hard for me to relate to the previous, the whole uh, 13 previous chapters because I'm so bewildered. I'm lost in this bewilderment of chapter 14. Is well, that on? The, is that on purpose? <laughs> I think the growth happened in the previous thirteen chapters, but we had to be looking for it. We had to be watching it. But I'm but I'm taken out of all of that because now I'm just left with it, my giant sure. WTF. Sure, sure, sure. It requires trust, and if ever you go back and reread it, I think you'll probably see it in a different light. Hmm. Possibly. Sure. sure. Possibly. Because all of a sudden you'll see all these little, I've tried to include as many clues as I could in the things that I read in the previous two episodes that we did. <laughs> You're like laughing at us as we're stumbling. Not laughing. Down. I would never laugh. <laughs> no, of no, no. Of course not. Not, not laughing at us. Yeah. Taking joy in watching us <laughs> feel our way through that. Well, how many times did I say, put a pin in that? You or, did. To be continued or pay attention to this. <laughs> But it's not as though, you know, your brain has not been completely clogged with how many other universes. So mm. it's subtle. It's definitely subtle. Sure. She's not going to stand up and get on a soapbox and rant and rave and throw things. And it's it's interesting, John, that, you know, your your enjoyment of this book in, in terms of level of enjoyment is my enjoyment of the first three books. Right. So we're both we've mm-hmm. both enjoyed something, but yet our. Like you don't like cake. (laughs) Why is this becoming a meme now? (laughs) Because it's fun. Because I think it it feeds the parasocial relationship that we have with our listeners. So, you know, we got to have those little inside jokes. (laughs) I think John has the advantage of having studied with Carol Gilligan. 
I'll just put that out there. Hmm. I, I will say after I learned a lot from Carol Gilligan, I I read for like a year afterwards, I could only read anything or watch anything or consume any media thinking of it in terms of patriarchy. That was the only way I could do it. And I still very often use that as one of the lenses, but I could only use that lens for like a year afterwards because it, mm. it cut right to my core. And I really, uh, you know, loved studying that stuff. And uh, this book really reminded me of a lot of that. And it's, it's a big ask. It's a big mm-hmm. ask, particularly for men to read, I think. And, and I think for me now, I can, I can, I can see myself so much more in this book in, in my normal daily life. But I think for me, one of the things that I've wanted for myself for my life is to have had an adventurous life. Um, and I feel like I got that. And so that's why the first three books, I think, you know, probably spoke to me at that point when I first read them was a life of adventure, right? And, and mm-hmm. uh, grappling with things and, you know, struggling with myself and, and struggling with the world and, and going out and, and trying to make an impact, have a mark, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, so those three books also sit very deep in my nostalgia. Well, as someone who's going to be turning 68 in a half a year, I can say that my biggest adventure of my life started when I was 64, five. There you go. So it's cyclical. And what you consider to be an adventure will change throughout the course of your life. Indeed. And I think that's another thing that she's pointing out here, that adventure and courage and heroism manifest all over the place in many different ways and forms. And this is one particular place and form where this happens. The very beginning of the book, Lark asks Tenar when she has taken on the unbelievable task of healing and raising this horribly abused child. Lark says, why do we do what we do? And you could answer it in a lot of ways, but I one of the ways I would say is it's an act of heroism. Mm-hmm. It's just not the kind of heroism that we're accustomed to seeing. And I'm, I'm reminded of the scene in Star Wars on Dagobah where Luke is struggling to, you know, use the force to raise his X-Wing out of the swamp. And Yoda's like, dude, size doesn't matter. An object is an object, right? It doesn't. So an adventure is an adventure. Uh, The scale of the adventure, whether it's, you know, scrubbing a pot or, you know, getting your kid to school on time or, you know, living a, a, a life outside of your home country, you know, in, in various places. Mm-hmm. It, it's conversely, there's a, another slide sideways, you know, pain is pain. Like how are we going to, right. you know, scale our pain? It doesn't adventure. These things are, we can look at the external circumstances, but then sort of an, in our internal sense, like, well, how do we compare these? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, for me, I don't. Right. I don't believe in the pain Olympics. A situation which would be simple for one person could be terrifying for me. Yeah. Because of our different life experiences. 
And conversely, something that I can do without any particular kerfuffle could be terrifying for somebody else. I'm watching our, our daughter as she's developing and she's a deep feeling person. And so certain things, mm. but she's, she also has a, this great baseline of a very positive, happy. Person. She does. She does. Yeah. And, I saw that uh, in her when we were there. Yeah. And, but when something does happen and, and does uh, strike some emotional chords for her, you know, myself or my wife or, you know, somebody else we're like, you know, what's the big deal? That's not a big deal. But for her, it's a big deal. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because she feels her emotions very much. You know, she's, you know, those, those big feelings for her are deeper than somebody else. So it's like, I always have to check myself and go, oh, wait a minute. She, her sensory, her emotional sensory apparatus, she's a very empathetic person too. And so she's, mm -hmm. the impact is much bigger where I'm mm -hmm. 54. I probably, you know, I'm, I'm not dead to the world, but you know, you, we develop a, a sensitivity, no. you know, we, we, we thicken ourselves, I guess, in a way. Well, but you also have that many more years of life experience to give it a context. Yeah, absolutely. And perspective. Exactly. She doesn't have that kind of perspective yet. And as a fellow empath, I, I understand the kinds of things she's going through and right. she's lucky to have parents who recognize that yes, for her, it is a big deal. And part of her growing up is going to be learning how to allow those big feelings without them overwhelming her. Right. And to recognize it not as a weakness, but as a strength. So how does this relate to <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, it's not dissimilar from some of the things that, that um, exactly. Tenar says to Theru. Right. If you think about it. I was really struck by something that one of you or both of you said on the last podcast, which was the battle of this book is basically the battle for Theru the battle to bring to heal her to bring mm -hmm. her into a functional personhood mm -hmm. and that really framed the rest of the book for me so i appreciated that man hmm. this lorehounds podcast they do a great job on there but <laughs> yeah it's i i think that's absolutely right and i think that if you frame it like that there's a ton of action in this in this whole thing there's the promise of he'll never touch you there's the the I don't remember where it cuts off, but there's a promise that they'll never touch you. And will, will she be able to fulfill that promise? And th there's just a lot of back and forth on will Theroux heal. And I think that that really is how you enjoy this book the most. Mm. Mm. I think that's interesting. You know, we, someday when I'm able to, you know, come back around and read this again, keeping these thoughts in mind, because I did read it going, okay, when, when's the action, you know, when, when are we going to get to it? Right. And, uh, but if, you know, recentering it from that point of view, cause I was able to sort of recenter to, um, uh, <laughs> kind of blanking the name of the main character, uh, Tenar? Tenar, thank you. Goodness me. Um, you know, I was able to recenter on Tenar and get myself there. But then I think if you come all the way around and put the lens, the point of view lens on Theru, Theru then it's got to be a wholly different story. But I think you can't do that unless you've, can you do that without having read it once already? No, I don't know. No, you cannot. You cannot do that. Do you know what you, you reminded me of when you said I kept waiting for the action to happen? Mm -hmm. Way, way back in the first book. Okay. 
when Ged is following Ogian across the mountain back to his home and he says, when am I going to start learning? When are the lessons <laughs> going to start? And Ogian says, they've already begun. That's right. <laughs> there you go. Well, I think that that's enough spoiler-free talk. I think we're we're getting very dangerously close to the spoiler territory <laughs> with all that we're talking about. We've so. some good context for it. Absolutely. So if you haven't read the book, we'll see you when you do. If you have read the book or you just want to be spoiled, then we'll see you after the break. And we're back. All right. So we've got this lovely synopsis by Marilyn. So would you like to take it away, Marilyn? I will happily read it. Yes. Previously, the former Archmage of Earthsea, Ged, was flown on the dragging Kalesan to his home island of Gaunt, where he was met by Tenar of the Ring. Ged has lost his magic through defeating an evil wizard who promised an end to death by draining all magic and life from the world. Tenar, now a widowed farmwife on Gaunt, has adopted a horribly abused child, naming her Theru. They all meet at the house of Ged's former master, but Ged flees messengers from the king and takes his shame at losing his magic to tend goats near Tanar's farm. One of Theru's abusers comes looking for her, and Tanar is cursed by the wizard Aspen for trying to report this to the lord of Realbi. Fleeing the curse and the abuser, Tanar and Theru are rescued by King Lebanon, who takes them into his ship to return them to Tanar's farm. So that's the previous two chapters, and now we have. Can I can I just say? Oh, do I love King Aragorn? I mean, Lebanon, uh, <laughs> you know, kneeling to Tenar, really excellent stuff. Uh, yes. You know, trying to kneel to Tenar, and she goes, "Yeah, you're not going to kneel to me. I'm not going to kneel to you. That's not what we do here, buddy. Right, buddy boy. Right. I feel like she could have said buddy boy, and would have felt very natural. Nobody kneels in Numenor. or at any rate in in Tanar's mind plenty of people kneel in Earthsea I I gotta make a couple of my jokes from the last segment because I'm here for it you know you absolutely do anytime you want just interject so section one Tanar and Theru are welcomed back to the village and the farm the sorcerer Beach brings word that the king is establishing new local councils to deal with ruffians and so-called sturdy beggars he compliments Tanar on Theru's growth and suggests that she be apprenticed to a witch. Tenar asks their local witch, Ivy, if she will take Theru on, but the witch replies that she is too frightened of Theru's power. Game knows game. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of clues. This is one of them. Theru is is uh, her. It's through the roof, her power. And Ivy is not having it. I, I, uh, I'm wondering, honestly, even at the end, I'm not sure exactly what Ogian wanted Tenard to do with the room. Mm. Teach her, but teach her what exactly? Because I, I mean, Tenard struggles with this too. You know, do I teach her mending and, and sewing and whatnot? Or do I teach her magic, which I barely know myself? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's a that's a big conflict and I, I still don't know the answer by the end of this book yeah i mean teach her all that you can teach her perhaps about being human mm-hmm. 
I mean, she realizes, Tanar does, that the best thing to teach her at this point is the stories of Earthsea. So you think Ogian knew from the start, this is a half-dragon person? Oh, spoiler. <laughs> well, we're into it now. So. Yeah, we're, in we're into it now. Yeah, we're into we're it now. Okay, already. We're good. We can We can discuss it as a whole. So you think he knew at the beginning? He was seeing something um, as his life was slipping away. And that's mm-hmm. why he said all changed. He knew the story of the woman of Kimei. He told the story about, or Tanar told the story to Theru about him going to this woman's house and knocking on the door and opening the door and seeing a dragon there. And, you know, putting up protection to himself and calling out dragon. And then the next thing you know, he sees an old woman. And the woman says, and he says to her, you know, but, you know, you're a dragon. And she says, well, it's not that simple. Hmm. And so we're pointed to the song that Tanar taught Theru. And then she's subsequently, Theru is constantly chanting or singing or whatever about far away on the other wind, my people are dancing. Mm-hmm. So this then just begs this question of one of the questions of did Theru know what she is, was becoming? What sense of herself did she have for her of herself? Oh, I think she did. I mean, I think that the Daniel at the end clearly points to that because she sees her beloved mother and father being entrapped by this spell. The first thing she does is she runs to the edge of the cliff where she's told never to run, but she runs carefully and she calls out the West and she calls the eldest, the one who raised the islands out of Earthsea, the one who brought Ged back because she'd heard his name or his, her name, Le Guin points out that we don't know Kalesin's gender. Mm. But Tanar heard that name in Theru's dream and picked up on that and realized, had some enough self-knowledge to realize those are my people. But Theru's acting like a human child and responding to uh, uh, the threat of violence and, and past assault as a human person would, especially a young, you know, human. Mm-hmm. So there's, while her identity by, well, not her identity, but her nature was being teased at and hinted at, and the tracks were being laid for it. I'm just left at the end then. Okay. Suddenly this is a, a, a an awakened alive person who's aware of their nature, but all along the point of view that we had in her responses to situations and circumstances was that of a normal human being who's going to be afraid of her abusers and who's going to hide or, you know, play with little bone figures or, you know, play games around the farm and, and, you know, run around and that kind of stuff. So to me, it's, I'm utterly confused as to mm-hmm. her, her reveal. And we're just into it now. <laughs> sure. No, I, I, I think she responds to her life as an abused child because that's what she is. She's a both and, and we're very uncomfortable with both ends. Mm-hmm. To not just completely uncertain of it, but the way she responds as an abused child 
is to do her best to conform to what her foster mother wants and to behave in a way that is not going to invite more abuse. It's just what you do. But she's constantly watching and thinking and processing. There's one quote here. I mean, eventually, Tanar realizes that she ha- that Theru has power. I mean, Ivy tells her that. I think she's an idiot for walking around holding a, a, a whirlwind <laughs> <Half dragon>. by <laughs> the hand. Yeah. As, as John said, you know, game knows game or like knows like. So she's telling Theru when, when she says to her, you have strength, Theru, and strength that is ignorant is dangerous. Mm. And Theru's response is, like the ones who wouldn't learn, Theru said, the wild ones. Tanar did not know what she meant and looked her question. The ones that stayed in the West, Theru said. Ah, the dragons, in the song of the woman of Keme. Yes, exactly. Mm. So which will we start with? How the islands were raised from the sea, or how King Morid drove back the black ships? The islands, Theru whispered. Dara had rather hoped she would choose the dead deed of the young king, for she saw Lebanon's face as Morid's. But the child's choice was the right one. So just right there, it's all there in a sense. She's been taking everything in, as you do when you are hypervigilant, which is a pretty common phenomenon, for, especially for children who have been abused. She's always listening. She's always taking in anything that can help her understand her own situation is an important piece. And she's mm-hmm. always fascinated by dragons from the very beginning. Remember when... And sure. Tanar is brushing your hair and the f- sparks yeah, yeah. are flying and Great she's scene. just yeah. so uh, it, attracted to that. And that's really when you, at least uh, I'll say when I was like, okay, here, here's, here's a giant uh, uh, flashing arrow right. pointing at something, you know, right. yet to come. This so. means something. I don't know what. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is perfectly understandable. So do we have anything else on this first section? No, I'm just really, uh, I'm stuck in at the end. I think there's some, some great middle sections here. There's some conversations that Ged and mm-hmm. um, Tenar have. Yeah. Uh, we'll get there. Yes, we will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm good with this section. Yeah. I just wanted to comment on the term sturdy beggars, both as an historian as and as someone who is contemporarily concerned with what that label is often applied to. Sturdy beggars was a medieval term that was applied certainly by the Elizabethan era to people who were whole of body, but did not have work. And they were viewed as being obstinate that they would not work. Mm -hmm. And so if you were labeled a sturdy beggar, that meant you were chased from town to town. Mm -hmm. You know, again, leaving your own town was dangerous enough. We've talked about that before, you know, people who leave their community and go out alone. Right. They had to leave and go out alone in many cases because there was no work for them in their own village. And so that term sturdy beggars is a very judgmental term. Mm-hmm. And I found it interesting that she chose to use that. I'm sure she knew the history of it and that she did that with intention. But there's so many... There's, you know, examples of, of things going on. And there's a lot of scenes of the, the local, quote unquote, constabulary seeking out 
um, malfeasance and throwing the local Lord Hano, who is in the pocket of the pirates and vice versa into jail and how he's so pocket of the pirates is <laughs> i think <laughs> an instigate a leader of the pirates definitely so, for sure yeah for sure when well, we talked a lot about justice in the last episode in the right. last podcast and about how justice is embodied by a person or by institution and we can see here lebanon uh being the avatar of justice and the thing that all the people in all the islands can look to for a face of justice or a sensibility of justice. But then we see the establishment of institutions, of right. bailiffs and of uh, courts and of the, the apparatus of bringing those, you know, of accusation to trial to you know to verdict to punishment mm -hmm. and interesting that uh later i think it's probably in the next in the next couple of sections but we, we see wrongdoers not summer summarily uh judged and and dealt with but put into a process and into a system right and so we see lebanon as as the f avatar of justice but he is uh, setting up the institutions of justice. Yes. And, and expecting it to be spread through all the islands, recognizing that it cannot be just one person or, you know, a central court or whatever, that it right. has to come for each community and to deal with themselves. Coming back to Theru uh, for a minute, I just wanted to remind you that she almost didn't talk when they first found her, she was like a wild thing. She, you know, speech was slow to come to her. So again, um, not even completely comprehending what had happened to her, except that it hurt. Mm -hmm. And then learning how to speak in a way that, you know, people around her would comprehend. It's very difficult to say who you are if you don't have any words to express it. So we should put a pin in the question of her origin and how sure. she. Sure. I'm because I'm completely clueless about all that whole, the whole story, her whole, her old, her whole backstory and how she got to where she was. So well, but anyway, let's, let's deal with that sort of as the may end. not be answered. <laughs> Fair enough. That's fine. Uh, but we can, we can draw some lines around those unknown unknowns, right? We right, can start right. to identify so that there are known unknowns. So there we go. I'm guessing something's going to be answered in the other wind when there was a whole line about, Oh, my hmm. people on the other wind or whatever. Yeah. Actually, good. we might even get some answers in uh, tales from Earthsea. Mm. You never know. Shall we move on? Yeah, let's do it. On a night of hard frost, Tanar starts to teach Theru the songs that are sung throughout all the isles of Earthsea as the seasons turn. As she's getting ready for bed, Tanar hears the voices of a group of men, including Theru's abusers, trying to break into her house. At first she panics, then runs with a butcher's knife to the door and flings it open, just in time to distract them from Ged, who stabs one with a pitchfork, at which the others run away. Next morning, folk from the village and farm come to congratulate Ged, 
who had just come down from the mountain after his summer alone dealing with his grief. That evening, Ged and Tanar are finally able to fully express their love for one another after 25 years. Ged Through the ensuing... And, oh, sorry, sorry. I was going to sing a song. <laughs> Ged and Tanar sitting in a tree. <laughs> now you can go on. Go okay. On. Through the ensuing winter, they and Theru become a family. How lovely. That was a nice ending to that. I really liked Ged coming in with a pitchfork. But also, you know, he he has this kind of badass moment. And then he goes, but if I were a wizard, those guys would have been knocked on their asses. Mm -hmm. And that stinks. You know, he's he's really mourning the loss of his power there, even even after a triumph. I I thought there was a really funny quip here. Uh, Tanara was like, if he was dead, we could have buried him. And uh, and Ted says something like, well, I tried. You can't you can't say I didn't try. Yes, and that that whole thing of bearing uh, really took me back to the tombs of Atuan. Oh, interesting! And standing in the hallway once they kind of—I think it's—is at the end of the chapter. There, after the uh, attack, assault, whatever, and the and all of that, they're standing in the hallway, and I, it was very clear. Uh, call back to them being in the tombs of Atuan. Right. But then right. Um, this whole question of, of burying a body in the tombs and the darkness and the way that the Aspen spell is still binding her a little bit as if it the is. old ones still had power over um, Tanar's uh, Arha, over Arha, the little Arha in, inside her. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a there's a lot of thematic elements that made me think back to to Atuan. And I think one of you brought up, I think Marilyn, you brought up, you know, dementia patients, Alzheimer's patients of how mm. when you I, I think you brought that up in the last podcast. I mean, and when you see someone, a family member, a loved one go through that, they often regress to their earliest memories, to their foundation. That's right. That's as right. a coping mechanism, and that's the things that stay with them the strongest. Tanar lived many years with this being her whole life, like being fully indoctrinated into this cult before mm-hmm. she started questioning it. And then mm-hmm. Ged comes along and makes her really question it. So I think that that's perfectly reasonable, and I think it's really interesting to see her revert to the priestess of Atuan rather than you know use something that Ogian taught her. And it saves her from Aspen's curse the first time. Right. Yeah. She yeah. cannot think in Hardic, but she can think in Kargish. Yeah. And that's what rescues her. Arha rescues her. Right. And it's interesting to note, you know, we keep thinking of Tanar as being an old widow. How old do you suppose she is? Forty uh, in the sport. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Forty two. Really? She's forty. <laughs> wow, that was a good no, guess. Not forty two. She was Come seventeen on. when they left the tombs, and it's twenty five years ago. So how old is so, Ged? Well, he's about 52. I mean, Douglas Adams didn't even write the, uh, <laughs> any yep. of his novels before she wrote. Yeah, but the section that you in, uh, referenced there a minute ago, John, punished. That's what he said. Punish the child. She's bad. She must be punished. Punished me for taking her, for being. She struggled to speak. I don't want punishment. It should not have happened. I wish you killed him. 
I did my best, Ted said. After a good while, she laughed rather shakily. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you certainly did. Think how easy it would have been, he said, looking into the coals again when I was a wizard. I could have set a binding spell on them up there on the road before they knew it. I could have marched them right down to Valmouth like a flock of sheep. Or last night, here. Think of the fireworks I could have set off. They'd have never known what hit them. They still don't, she said. He glanced at her. There was in his eye the faintest, irrepressible gleam of triumph. No, he said, they don't. Useful with a pitchfork, she murmured. He yawned enormously. (laughs) That's the first time, I think, forget to realize that you don't have to be archmage to be heroic. Right. And it, it what struck me there was that he seriously wounded this guy and there was all this sort of consternation around it where how many people has I mean has he has he killed anyone before? It's a good question. He certainly, I mean, used some heavy magic at times. And so for him to now be uh, non-magical and to face life and death without any of his trappings as, as a mage, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was taken aback from his point of view. Like, oh, whoa, this is weird. <laughs> you know, like... I like almost killed this guy. And so he's, he's just very normal in this moment and he's still dealing with that normality. Yeah. I, I, it's an interesting question. My instinct is to say, no, I don't think he ever killed anybody. I don't think that's in keeping with, you know, maintaining balance and equilibrium. I think in, as a boy on the Island of Gaunt, when he brought in the fog, with the Kargish uh, raiders, mm-hmm. I'm sure some of them died as a result of falling off the, the cliff or whatever. Oh yeah, right? yeah. oh yeah, yeah. But yeah. that that's more of an indirect thing, and and as a just a kid, he was just sort of reacting. Exactly. exactly. Whereas I don't think in in either of the three books, he actually left any any bodies in his uh, in his path. No, he he bound them up and told him one of them he couldn't speak until he had a good word to say. Right. Uh, the Spider-Man method, right? We web him up, <laughs> we leave him there. Yeah, yeah. So that's no. interesting. That's really interesting because as Archmage, he could have dropped atomic scale you know, weaponry on, on whole towns and cities if he had wanted to, right? That's right. That's right. But that would have been outside the balance. Mm. That would not have been equilibrium. And sooner or later, his fellow mages would have come calling. Right. Um, and that's something that he talks about too in this section. He, he says that, you know, the mages are traveling from aisle to aisle and Tenar says, oh dear, maybe they're looking for the archmage again. And he said, no, I think they're looking for uh, misuse of the art magic. Mm-hmm. And this is when she tries to say to him, well, then they should look at the house of Realbe. Right. But she can't get it out. Yeah. Right. She's still... And then she's, what was I, what, oh, I'm getting forgetful. What was yeah. it trying to tell God? Oh yeah. I have to tell him that the moth is getting into the apple trees. Right. So that is a clue to us readers that Aspen's spell 
is still active, even from a distance, 100%. which is yeah. kind of chilling to uh, just thinking think about, about Tanar here for a second, though, too. Something that I think is really interesting is that in my head, I can count four distinct phases of her life. Mm. Which is really interesting. The the different lives that she radically different lives that she led from Seriously. from one to the other, from one season to another. Now, whether they follow the Northern European, you know, uh, spring, summer, winter, fall, you know, patterning, I I don't know, but certainly she's has has seasons of being the the child before she was eaten, being the priestess, then being uh, Tanar. Right. And uh, what's her go- Goa, I think is. Uh, Gohar. 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 Oh, it is. See, I, I I was thinking of it in like a British accent because of the audiobook. I thought it was Gohar, <laughs> but they were saying it. Goha, you know. Yeah. Goha. Oh, man. Goha. And then now uh, with Hawk, right? The, the, and her life as a, right. as a parent right. with Hawk. Right. So four very radically <laughs> distinct uh, lives that she's led. And, I, and for me... This is where something I, I can see myself in this book in ways where I've had radically, I've led a lot of different lives that I'm not connected to in, in, in a continuity way. I mean, the continuity is me, but mm-hmm. I've lived in very different places and done very different things. I don't have a single career. I didn't study a single subject in college and then go do that job and then retire and blah, blah, blah. Right. That's not at all, uh, my life. And so I can see that. And so as you're trying to wrap up your life in, in in sort of your last act, not to be thinking about mortality that much, but just going, okay, well, this is, you know, this is going to be the last stage that, you know, you're trying to put it all into perspective and to, to understand it and tie some of it together. And so the conversations that they have, as they're doing the the work of the farm are are fascinating because you really do have perspective at this stage to be able to look at much bigger questions and and think about what different things have meant or mean or how the world is the way the world is sure sure winter is the time for conversation and for stories mm-hmm. touching back a minute on on Ged's role <clears throat> when uh when Tanar is being threatened. Um, this is from Ursula Le Guin's essay, uh, Earthsea Revisioned. But what is Tanar's freedom? A very contingent thing. She lives alone. One night, men surround her house, meaning to rape her and take her child from her. Victimized, she panics. She rushes from door to door to window. At last, fear turns to rage, and seizing a knife, she flings the door wide open. But it is Ged playing the man's role to the hilt, who actually stabs one of the assailants. He has been gendered into violence, just as much as they have, and she has been gendered into response. Neither acts with genuine freedom, but they do act. Yeah. Back to those scripts, right? You know, we fall back on our scripts when we're in a panic, mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. we're in a high stress situation. I think that's right. Did Ged even mean to stab him? Uh, it sounded more like he just had the pitchfork out and, and the guy ran into him. The guy ran right onto it, seemingly. Yeah. Um, 
but um, he was there and he had the pitchfork. And Tanar talks about this mystery as she sees it of Ged being someone who had the capacity to listen and to be in the right place at the right time. Right. That comes before his massive capacity for the power and art of magic, which he has now lost. Mm -hmm. So he still has that other capacity, but nobody recognizes it as anything in particular because all they can see is the, the magic, the power, until he loses it. Well, I was just going to say, I think this whole scene of, of these guys coming around is really chilling in that world where assailants just seem to are, are able to slip through any system of justice and or, or response, you know, around domestic violence and and these kinds of things where these are these are horrific actions and thoughts that are being taken on and. Yet there's no accountability. There's no justice, and for and for whatever reason, they they just keep coming, and they just keep having power over mm -hmm. you. And it's just so terrifying in the sense of not having agency. And finally, her in desperation, she's just like to hell with it, like ah, you know, mm -hmm. acting out of this primal fear. It's it's really um, it's terrorizing to know that there are people who have dealt with this multiple times in their lives where they can't get yeah. away from an abuser yeah. for as yeah. much as they try. The systems are, are not there for them to, to protect them and to, and, and to punish the wicked and, you know, uphold the good. Well, and, and Tanar has a very insightful realization as she's talking with the neighbors the next day and she kind of settles down and in reviewing it with other people, gaining perspective on it and it's a wonderful expression so that it was not something that kept happening but it was something that had happened mm -hmm. which is the classic method of coping with ptsd and she follows that up with the realization of she was doing this for one night theoru had to do this with her entire life right which really puts it in perspective for me. Right. And then Lark has an interesting observation about all this. Fear, she said, what are we so afraid of? Why do we let them tell us we're afraid? What is it they're afraid of? She picked up the stocking she'd been darning, turned it in her hands, was silent a while. Finally, she said, what are they afraid of us for? Dinar spun and did not answer. But then later, Ged does answer it by saying, if your power is founded upon the powerlessness of others, then you live in fear. Let's unpack that a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So yes, if you're powerless and you know that you are under the power of somebody else. Excuse me. I yeah. misquoted it. Okay. Tanad has been reflecting upon the fact that the only place a woman has power because she's a woman is with her children and in her house and so forth. But right. the doors are shut and locked and gets us because you're valuable. Right. And Tanar says, Oh yes, we're precious. So long as we're powerless. I remember when I first learned that 
castle threatened me, me, the one priestess of the tombs, and I realized that I was helpless. I had the honor, but she had the power from the God King, the man. Oh, it made me angry and frightened me. Lark and I talked about this once. She said, why are men afraid of women? If your strength is only the other's weakness, you live in fear, Ged said. Yes, but women seem to fear their own strength to be afraid of themselves. Are they ever taught to trust themselves? Ged asked. And as he spoke, Theru came in on her work again. His eyes and Tanar's met. No, she said. Thrust is not what we're taught. She watched the child stack the wood in the box. If power were trust, she said. I like that word. If there weren't all these arrangements, one above the other, kings and masters and majors and owners, it all seems so unnecessary. Real power, real freedom, would lie in trust, not force. Right. And I think we were talking uh, about a similar parallel topic when we just recorded our reactions, our review for the Marvels movie, Mm. Mm -hmm. where there's a different style of ending and we won't spoil that ending, but rather than a particular kind of trauma or a particular kind of loss or a particular kind of defeat, you know, of, of overcoming, there was a, a binding and a healing mm-hmm. and, and bringing together as opposed to um, a, uh, a violent end, you know? Mm-hmm. So but what I find fascinating about this is get himself having the realization. Of- yes. Yeah. If your strength is only the other's weakness, then you live in fear. Because what happens when they're strong? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And it ties in beautifully with uh, Captain Marvel when she says, I've been fighting with one hand behind my back all my life. What happens when I'm finally set free? Right. And this, according to Le Guin in this story, is the subtext of why men are afraid of women. Or a dominating structure is afraid of those who are subordinate realizing that they don't have to be. And not to get too contemporary about it, but there is certainly that in around some of the racial politics that we're experiencing in America right now, there is a reaction to the fear of what if these people who've been being, we've been managing and controlling suddenly are equal and have as much resources. We're going (laughs) to, it's, they're going to come after us. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. we're going to lose. So it's it's a fear based reaction. So we got we got to keep doubling down. Mm-hmm. John, you're awfully quiet over there. Yeah, are Have you, you lost muted, you, John? John? I was are muted. You... <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Gosh darn that, it! That might have something to do with it. <laughs> okay. Well, now that I'm back, I was just enjoying the podcast from my from my favorite Etsy <laughs> podcasters. <laughs> I feel I feel right back at home after episode two. I'm I'm, I'm waiting to hear from one of my favorite podcasters. <laughs> I mean, it's great. I mean, even this idea of um, you know Theru being a target of these grown men who want to feel like they are powerful, I think plays into what you're saying is you know needing to make others feel inferior to make yourself feel powerful. And, you know, Theru is, is clearly 
probably one of the most powerful beings we've met in this world, right? Yeah. And yet she has her her face burned and whatnot, which I'm a little confused as to how a dragon got her face burned. But yeah, yeah, I got I got deep. I got a lot of questions about the story. Here. <laughs> I, I guess what what I had to just accept is dragons don't work the same way in this world as other worlds, which is fine. You know, yeah. there's mm-hmm. there's just different rules about like maybe dragons aren't just fire based. They are just magic based. And that's fine with me. That's, you know, your dra- your your book, your dragons. I don't I don't <laughs> I don't mess with that, Ursula. <clears throat> Just as long as you don't say you're a circus, you're monkeys. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I really like this idea of let's explore how I'm trying to phrase this the right way. Let's explore how power dynamics shift in a world where power has been held by both genders and yet only exercised primarily by one. Mm-hmm. Well, another pithy thing that Ged has to say is all of men's power is based in shame. Mm. And he's reflecting on this um, as he's up on the mountaintop and he finally starts to ask, why does he feel, what is he ashamed of? What did he ever do to be ashamed of it? Right. And, and Tanah breaks in and says, absolutely nothing. Right. And Ged responds and says, well, but you know, all men's power is based in shame, Mm. which to my mind, is sufficiently distressing to begin with. Yeah, that's a. There's a lot to un- unpack. That's yeah, a lot other, to unpack. Yeah, that's a that's a whole other sets of conversations. And this is why I love this book so much. She's not focusing only on women. Sure, she's right. looking at gender as a whole. Mm-hmm. How cultures established it, what they believe and so forth. And I'm going to ask your indulgence because I want to read to you the, my favorite part of this. I'd love it. I'll when try they, not to click the mute button this time. <laughs> <laughs> when they finally come together and she says, well, which bed shall I sleep in? Good. The child's for yours. <laughs> this is so great. She's just like, all right, dude, we're, we got to sort this thing out right now, here and now. <laughs> he drew breath. He spoke low. Mine, if you will. I will. The silence held him. She could see the effort he made to break from it. If you'll be patient with me, he said. I have been patient with you for 25 years, she said. (laughs) She looked at him and began to laugh. Come, come on, my dear. Better late than never. I'm only an old woman. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is ever wasted. You taught me that. She stood up and he stood. She put out her hands and he took them. They embraced and their embrace became close. They held each other so fiercely, so dearly that they stopped knowing anything but each other. It did not matter which bed they meant to sleep in. They lay that night on the hearthstones and there she taught Ged the mystery that the wisest man could not teach him. After a while she murmured, he was lying here, hake, right underneath us. Ged made a small noise of protest. Now you're a man indeed, she said. <laughs> Duck another man full of holes first and laying with the woman second. That's the proper order, I suppose. <laughs> Hush, he murmured, turning to her, laying his head on her shoulder. Taunt, I will, Ged. 
poor man, there's no mercy in me, only justice. I wasn't trained to mercy. Love is the only grace I have. Oh, Ged, don't fear me. You were a man when I first saw you. It's not a weapon or a woman that can make a man or Majory itself or any power, anything but himself. Which I'm is, not into world domination, but if I were, I would love for every male masculine identified child to be able to read this mm. very early on in their lives. Because that's not what we're taught, but it's true. Sure. Mm. I, I'm, I'm also called back to uh, Ged um, creating himself whole by uh, naming his shadow. Mm. Mm. And, Say more. And, and, you know, being whole, but here he is. Oh, I kind of lost the, the thought now. What was the, the the last line there? What was the last couple of lines? Um, it's not a weapon or a woman can make a man or majory either or any power, anything but himself. Yeah. So anything but himself and, and his reintegration with his shadow is himself. He made himself mm-hmm. a man, but yet <laughs> he's, he's done things that weren't, you know, that were, are expected of men, but, or, you know, are right. accepted of men, but yet he's never done those things, killed somebody or, you know, had intimate relations with, with another person. Right. This idea, I, I'm backtracking a little bit, but there was something I wanted to say, and then you guys got on a really good train, so I didn't want to interrupt. So here we are. <laughs> I'm going Thank back you. to shame a little bit. Um, <laughs> what a statement. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, my point is. Now that I'm here there, you know, you mentioned Carol Gilligan. She has a husband who's a psychiatrist, James Gilligan, who actually worked in prison reform and mental health in prisons. Mm. And he did a study on violence in those prisons. And he focused a lot on shame versus guilt. And he talked about how shame is an anger towards other people you're angry because you're make, being made to feel bad by other people guilt right. is an anger towards yourself guilt mm. is i'm mad at myself for hurting other people and both are unhealthy both are yeah. just very unhealthy in in uh, you know large quantities or much quantity at all and you need to fight that with love and it's very difficult to do that because we're trained to lean into especially men shame women guilt mm-hmm and I think that that shows up here, right? I mean, Tenar is is very like, I'm. I feel so badly that I couldn't protect Theroux from being touched again by that man. Right. She right. doesn't get angry at the man; she gets angry at herself. And I resonate with that so much. It's interesting because I swap the terms, but exactly the same concepts. For me, guilt is about something I do. Shame is about who I am. But he's saying the same thing, just swapping the words around. So fine. That's fine with me. Yeah. And, and, and being able to resolve shame is uh, um, a tricky thing too. It's kind of a, a finger trap, one of those finger trap nets, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, you, you, you're trying to pull away from it, but where you have to go is into it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, and accepting it to let it, 
to to have it dissolve and to to right. to just disappear because when you let go of shame or when you can be in that space it just dissolves it's just gone you right. loosen the bonds yeah i'm also reminded of something i'm sure i have to have said at some point on many podcasts but that um this is elaine pagel's incredible realization human beings would rather feel guilty than feel helpless mm. and so the helplessness instead of acknowledging it and accepting it you flip into guilt i should have i could have why didn't i which is exactly well, what you're talking about john and then and from which there, does in the which Tanar does in the exactly yeah and from there you flip into anger yeah right and violence so it's it's this progression it's kind of like yoda's you know progression into the dark side um, but I don't think it's a dark side or a light side. It's it's our tendency. And if we can't learn to accept our helplessness in situations, then the guilt's going to start flooding in. And then you resent the guilt and the helplessness. So you cover that with anger. Anger is almost an, always a shielding emotion for other things that you're not willing to deal with. So to take a, a thought a, a little bit further afield here, into this realm of, of culture and cultural drivers. When I lived overseas, in this, one of the things that would happen, there was a the country I lived in had a higher mortality rate than than we did. Mm. And when somebody died, you never asked why. It was just mm. oh, I'm I'm so sorry, and oh, and you know you know if you were any way related. You know when's when are the the ceremony? When's the you know when's the funeral going to happen? And you know where can I give money and do the thing or whatever? Here in in the U.S. and I, I can't speak to other uh, European or, or Western cultures, but certainly here, what's the first thing we do? Why? What did they die of? How did they die? Right. We right. need the because because what. Mm-hmm. So that we can, is, was there some action we could have taken? Could we have done something about it? Or can we prevent it in the future or right. or what happened? Right. You know, and so there's a, this action oriented thing. We need, we need to, I would rather do the wrong thing and be guilty than to be helpless. I'd rather cut a hole in the world and let all life and magic drain out yeah. of it than accept right. the fact that I will die. Yeah. So Le Guin t- discusses this a little bit more in in her Earthsea Revisioned essay. And she talks about in the revision, she's discarded the axiom, what's important is done by men, and the corollary, what women do, isn't important. And so that's changed the hero tale, and a good deal may leak out. We may have lost quest, conquest, and contest as the plot. Sacrifice is the key. Victory or destruction is the ending. And the archetypes may change. There may be old men who aren't wise, witches who aren't wicked, mothers who don't devour. There may be no public triumph of good over evil, for in this new world, what's good or bad, important or unimportant, hasn't been decided yet, if ever. Judgment is not referred up to the wise men. History is no longer about great men. The important choices and decisions may be obscure ones not recognized or applauded by society. Perhaps it is this lack of applause of quote-unquote importance that has led some reviewers to state that all the men in Tahanu are weak or wicked. 
There are certainly a couple of very nasty villains, but all the men? Ogian? I suppose dying is a kind of weakness, but I thought he came through it rather well. As for the young king, he rescues Tanar from a persecutor, just as a hero should, and is clearly going to be an innovative and excellent statesman. Several women readers have objected fiercely that Tanar's son, Spark, is a selfish lout. We'll come to that in a minute. Are all sons good, then, and all wise, all generous? Tanar blames herself for Spark's weakness, just like a woman. Right. But I blame the society that spoiled the boy by giving him unearned power. After he's managed that farm a while alone, he'll probably shape up. Why do we expect more of the son than of the daughter? But as for Ged, well, he has indeed lost his job. That's something we punish men for very cruelly. And when your job is being a hero, to lose it means you must indeed be wicked and weak. In Tahanu, Ged's virtues are no longer the traditional male heroic ones. Traditional masculinists don't want heroism revised and unrewarded. They don't want to find it among housewives and elderly goat herds, and they really don't want their hero fooling around with grown women. There didn't used to be any sex in Earthsea. My working title for Tahanu was Better Late Than Never. <laughs> Fair enough. I should add, the uh, this, this letter, this is Earthsea Revision, right? This is from that? It's an essay, yeah. yeah I was right. actually it's a speech that she gave at a conference and I was thrilled when she actually sent me a signed copy in response to the letter that I wrote to her all those years ago. Very very cool. I love when you talk about that. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I I wanted to add they actually printed that, I, I guess put it in the audiobook at the very end after the book this will play. Excellent. Which is Excellent. very nice. It was a very nice touch to have a little bit of explanation afterward. They also printed it in the massive tome that a lot of the listeners bought when they started this adventure with us. So it's a good thing because it's very difficult to find in print anywhere else I've tried. Should we maybe move on to the final section here? I think here? so. We're already running, running long. And we've already started tiptoeing into it a little bit. Spring arrives and brings unexpected visitors. Tanar's sailor's son, Spark, and the herdsman, Townsend, from Ray Albi, who tells them that Auntie Moss is sick and asking for them. Dismayed by Spark's callous sense of entitlement, Tanar decides with the family to return to Ray Albi. But Townsend's message is a snare to bring them back into the curse that was laid by Aspen. Somehow, Theru escapes the curse entirely and runs to the edge of the cliff face and calls into the west. Then she spends the night with Auntie Moss, calling her by her true name, and reassuring her that her people will come. The next day, as Aspen is about to force Tanar and Ged off the cliff to certain death, the dragon Kalesan appears and destroys Aspen and his followers. Theru reunites with her parents and tells Kalesan that she cannot go back with the dragon into the west if her parents cannot come with them. Kalesan tells Tanar that they give her their child now, as one day Tanar will return her child to Kalesan and flies away. The family agrees to stay in I Hall's house. Here's the story say. of a lovely family. <laughs> they had dragons and a, a lot of strange lineage here. Yeah. Lots to talk about. Uh, quickly, Sugoi. So this is the mm -hmm. dragon that raised the world? 
that's exactly who it is. I was like, blah, 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 what? <laughs> you know, it's like eldest. Yeah, it's the Tom Bombadil of this world, eldest. <laughs> um, well, good one. I don't think Tom Bombadil did any creating in Middle Earth. Ring a ding dillo. It's Tom Bombadillo. He enjoyed it all. He enjoyed it all. And Theru speaks fluent old speech. Yeah, what the hell? Because she's one of the dragon people. Right. So I guess we can just grapple with this real quickly right now. Where did she come from? How did she get with those people? You know, what, where, where, how, how does she already know old speech? Like it just, it flummoxes me. Uh, And I guess that's the, there you go. There's my, uh, there's my, cultural imperative showing which is i want to know why how where because i need Mm -hmm. the because uh statement as opposed to just being able to accept the fact that something happened in the world yeah i think you would like the wheel of time books david because if you want because (laughs) boy do we have it for you we got 14 (laughs) books of it it's not that i i like because it's i'm trained to be to to think of because and robert Um, jordan will deliver that for you i promise mm -hmm. (laughs) But we all are. I mean, that's I, I, I watch our daughter do that, you know, having needing that because that that understanding, you know, sure. as opposed to just, nope, that's just. And I I am a, someone who prides themselves on uh, being able to accept a null, a null answer as that's OK. I don't I don't need an answer for certain things in, in the world. I'm fine with the mm-hmm. fact. Mm-hmm. That there are things I cannot answer. It doesn't disturb me or you know upset my psyche. But I see all the time this this needing to put the world into an order and in, to categorize it and to understand causal relationships, mm-hmm. at least from the cultural imperatives that we uh, in this country are uh, Im- imbued with. Well, here's what. Ursula would say to that, again from Earthly Revisioned. At the end of the book, both Ged and Tanar face the defenders of the old tradition. Having renounced the heroism of that tradition, they appear to be helpless. No magic, nothing they know, nothing they have been, can stand against the pure malevolence of institutionalized power. Their strength and salvation must, must come from the outside, the institutions and traditions. It must be a new thing. And this was the thing that frustrated me about the ending. Because a lot of these experiences they're talking about are quite personal to me. And I wanted an answer. I wanted Mm -hmm. to know, okay, how do I take this into my world and do this? And the answer is a dragon? Yeah. (laughs) What am I supposed to do with that? Yeah. Mm. What am I supposed to do with that? But the point is... Le Guin didn't know herself at that point. She didn't know who or what Tanar was at first, other than to know that she was the key to the book. Theru. And Theru, thank you, thank you. And Ogian's saying in the very beginning, all changed. Throughout, you know, throughout this series, I kept saying, you know, hold on to that because it's important. When all has changed, you know. As I read earlier, a lot of the old stuff is going to fall out from 
the traditional hero tales. So we don't know yet what the answers are. She right. didn't know what the answers were. Mm-hmm. Okay. She had, and in a sense, you could say she was like a mystery author who painted herself into a corner and said, what do I do now? Oh, I know. Dragon. Boom. <laughs> Which is kind of cheating. You know, if, if yeah. you think in yeah. those terms, if yeah. you think in those terms, it's like, geez, what am I supposed to do with this? Yeah, but I, I get that. Think, I think what the answer is, is you recognize the institutionalized tradition. You recognize the harm that it does. And you recognize that you need to depart from that in some fashion. It comes back to her short story, Those Who Leave Omelis, which is a powerful short story. And listeners, if you haven't read it before, do read it. It posits a perfect society, which has its perfection only because underground in one of the buildings in the prison is a child who is kept in that prison. And as long as that child is kept in that prison, they can live in utopia. And members of that community are introduced to this concept, shown the child, like maybe in their teens or something. So those who stay in Omelis are willing to have a perfect life, which is guaranteed by this endless suffering. But those who walk away from Omelis decide, no, I can't do this anymore. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what it looks like. They only know that they refuse to accept that particular bargain. Mm. It sounds like walking away from the scripts you've been taught. Right. You know, walking away from the patterns you've been taught because they're easy and they fall. They're easy in the short term, I should say. And they're easy to fall into and rely on when you're when you're feeling stressed. I think I mm-hmm. think also talking about this hero's journey stuff. I think in a more traditional book, and I think if you if she took the same approach to this book as she did the first three, either Tenar or Theru would have unlocked some crazy power by like the middle end of this book. <laughs> and that's what would have defeated the wizards. And boy, oh boy, would they run for their lives. <laughs> they would have jumped sense, the gap. That's yeah. exactly what did happen. That's exactly what did happen. Well, in effect, Theru unlocks this crazy power. She calls on her support. She summons a dragon. Okay. She All right. summons yeah. a dragon. She it doesn't she get more powerful. Uses than the that. force and calls the mm-hmm. lightsaber right. into her hand. This is feeling right. very Skyrim. If you if you're waiting for our Skyrim coverage, it's probably out by now because this is coming out in December. But uh, yeah, there's a mm-hmm. lot of dragons in Skyrim and summoning dragons and whatnot. I get the deconstruction of the standard heroic model of, you know, uh, the the good guys beat the bad guys sort of thing. And I was utterly stunned at, you know, what's happening to to um, Tanar and, and Ged and, and their mm-hmm. powerlessness. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the dragon shows up. Okay, cool, right? And that's uh, Theru and uh, A.K.A. Tahanu, right? So that's a pulling thing. But then the the dragon just goes, but you know, and and there they go. They're they're done. Mm-hmm. And that that there's a a a, a sw- not. It's not even swiftness. It's just like it's almost a Deus Ex Machina kind of situation where oh, call the dragon, kill is. the bad guys, done. End of story. Yeah. And and if you say that she said like oh you know well we're, I'm not sure what that external force is or, or, or 
you know, how it's going to work. We're not really sure. We're still dealing with that. Okay. I, I get all that too. And I'm just missing some, uh, I needed to step through it a little bit more. Maybe the dragon lands and takes apart, you know, maybe these are old ones in here. Uh, and the dragon takes apart the, the manor house of Rhea, you know, there was just, or, or there's something more happening, but it it was just, it was so blip done and what, as opposed to an an illustration of a, a, you know, explain this to me a little bit more that, yeah, it's got to have something and it's got to come and here's the institutions of power and it's being disassembled instead. It's just a breath of fire and, and that's it. It's over. Well, here's what she might say in response to that. The dragon Kalesan in the last book is wildness seen not only as a dangerous beauty, but as dangerous anger. The fire of the dragon runs right through the book. It meets the fire of human rage, the cruel anger of the weak, which wrecks itself on the weaker in the endless circle of human violence. It meets that fire and consumes it, for a wrong that cannot be repaired must be transcended. There's no way to repair or undo what was done to the child, and so there must be a way to go on from there. It can't be a plain and easy way. It involves a leap. It involves flying. So the dragon is subversion, revolution, change, a going beyond the old order into which men were taught to own and dominate, and women were taught to collude with them the order of oppression. It is the wildness of the spirit and of the earth uprising against misrule. And it rejects gender. Thero has nothing of feminine female remaining in her that men would want. Beauty and virginity and virtue. As for Gedan Tanar, they're fully sexed too, but on the edge of old age, when conventional gendering grants him some last flings and grants her nothing but a modest grandmotherhood and the dragon defies gender entirely. There are male and female dragons in the earlier books, but I don't know if Galesson, the eldest, is male or female, or both, or something else. I choose not to know. The deepest foundation of the order of oppression is gendering, which names the male normal, dominant, active, and the female other, subjective, passive. To begin to imagine freedom, the myths of gender, like the myths of race, have to be exploded and discarded. My fiction does that by these troubling and ugly embodiments. Oh, they say, what a shame. Le Guin has politicized her delightful fantasy world. Earthsea will never be the same. I'll say it won't. (laughs) The politics were there all along. The hidden politics of the hero tale. The spell you don't know you're living under until you cast it off. As Jan Mark said, the politics of fairyland are ours. Indeed. Yeah, and the politics of Star Wars have always been there, and the politics of any of our our IPs that we stories that we cover, they're there. They're embedded in there because we're there. So mm-hmm. we're the ones that made the stories. Exactly. And she is now trying to make a different story. Right. There's a couple of things that that struck me as you were reading that. One, there's some great Dune tie-in stuff there in terms of. Um how we as a species, I think what Frank, one of the things that Frank Herbert was working on and trying to express was that, you know, we as a species need that wildness to continue to uh, evolve and develop. 
And that yeah. when things are locked in, and Foundation did this as well with the Cleonic Dynasty mm-hmm. and what Selden was in the television show, right? In using the, not talking about the books, but at least what they were grappling with more so in the show is that, you know, this kind of stasis limits us and ultimately is a ruin to us because we're not living with uncertainty and unknownness and pushing up against the boundaries of, um, of what we can do and what we can understand and, and, um, and how that affects us. I think Frank Herbert had some more complex things to say too about, um, how, predator prey relationships work in that and how hmm. when there's these unknowns out there how that can that drives us how it drives our survival instincts in different ways um so there's that which is an all uh, <laughs> it's all one sort of thing over here and then there's another set of things over here which i also was picking up in this book in terms of uh, Le Guin's own personal relationship with Taoism and and what her mm. philosophical thoughts were. There's definitely some rings. Uh, there were things ringing to me in there of that, but then also in terms of dualism and um, trying to, how do you get beyond dualism? How can you, we can't, we can't, can we? I don't know. Like, ah, oh, it's, it's such an intractable thing from our limited perspective being in these bodies and being in this world of night and day, black and white kind of stuff. How do you get beyond mm-hmm. to something even, you know, more simpler, not more simple. That's not the right way to say it, but to, we can't even, we more don't even nuance. have the language to describe it. Right. More complex. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when thanks. we don't have the language to describe it, it's well, beyond our, I know our, who does. Uh huh. That is our transgender friends and our non-binary friends, mm-hmm. which is why they are subject to so much, I will say fearful persecution. Sure. Because they are challenging that very duality that you were talking about. Yeah. I I was, we were out today and I was driving around and there's a lot of uh, gender expression in vehicles <laughs> and then the way vehicles are operated. And I thought, did, you know, it doesn't ever seem to, I don't remember it being so, obvious and apparent and this flexing that's going on. And I'm like, what is going on? And I was the pickup trucks are really just a whole thing. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, it's the ones that have repurposed their uh, mufflers to make as much noise as they possibly can. Right. And I don't want to, I don't want to get into, to, to, I'm speaking more, more abstract about it. No, I'm not speaking abstractly. If you drive a pickup truck, you better watch it. (laughs) But but now you're reacting in the, within the pattern there, John. Right. Good. Right. Sometimes patterns are good. (laughs) They may be a good jumping off point. So the, but I was wondering why is it being, so there, there's something, there's a, there's something in the marketplace that the, um, manufacturers, the the people who are in the business of selling these things are responding to. And they say, that we, we could stop selling these, but people are demanding these. You know, we, we put this truck out. Oh, let's see. Do they like this? Oh my God. They're like, we have sales mm-hmm. to the roof. So mm-hmm. we put out another one and it's blowing more sale. Like we, we keep like, why there's a demand in the market for, for this. And I can't but help think that it has to do with this fact that we are, there are 
as um, gender nonconforming people, and you know, be they within their sexuality or with their identity and physiology and all of the questioning that goes around outside of uh, this uh, sense of, um, you know, male, female base pairing, right? The sort of nuclear family thing that as that is being challenged, there is a response that is coming back stronger and harder and people Absolutely. are flexing even more. Well, like you, if you're going to challenge what it is to be a man or to be a woman or even man or woman, like whatever that means, I'm going to be more of a man or I'm going to be more of a woman. And I'm going to really, you know, uh, exaggerate my my gender identity. In, and, and the way it shows up is in these crazy looking trucks and things. Because that is what society has said demonstrates who and what a quote unquote real man is. Again, think back to what Tanar tells Ged. It's not, you know, stabbing an enemy and lying with a woman right. that makes a man. It's only the man himself. Right. But advertising speaks a very powerful language. Yeah. And it's very difficult to challenge the stereotypes of your culture. Yeah, and, and I think depending on what time we're living in and, and even now, but even more so yes. in the period I'm about to bring up, I, uh, <laughs> I, I had done a little case study once on, you know, how departing from gender norms angers the, the establishment, you know, it really, totally, really totally. makes oh, everyone yeah. uh, clutch their pearls and <laughs> set their hair on fire and run around naked in the street. <laughs> there was something I learned. Sure, about, if that floats your boat. <laughs> right. There was something I learned about it by happenstance, which is uh, about the original Rosa Parks. Or I don't know if either of you know the oh. story of Claudette Colvin. I don't know. I think I I know that there was somebody else that Rose uh, that Rosa Parks was. There's there's a lot more construction and a lot more there's yes. stuff that goes there's a bigger there's a broader story right. to to her and mm -hmm. to uh, other things that were happening right. at that time with other people so yeah that's she that's the extent not, of it she did not follow the solitary hero tradition who rose up full grown out of no right no she was whatever she had a community in a context she was an older woman who was a conservative dresser who was very much in line with ideas of safe womanhood and the original hmm. woman the young woman i i should say who who sat on uh, sat on the bus and wouldn't move was claudette colvin who was i i have to look up the age but i think she was 15 she was pregnant and wow. it was just too too many steps removed of the ideal feminine person at that time that mm -hmm. the civil rights movement actually said, no, we need to restage this event with someone more acceptable yeah. to the mainstream. Yeah, yeah. So this this young woman, and by the way, she's the one who sued and won the case. Rosa Parks didn't do that. Mm -hmm. So this is the one who wow. actually made the legal difference. And yet Rosa Parks gets wow. all the credit and not to diminish what she did. You know, Rosa Parks is an important figure and that was an important moment in American history. But just think about how like, and it's a weird thing had, to, to say credit too. Sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But the person who had really like the most genuine impact was a pregnant teenage girl. 
who got who who yeah. now is known by almost no one because she was too far diverging from the patriarchal standards. That's incredible, John. That's just an amazing story. And yeah, back then, you know, a pregnant teenager would have just been told to go hide in the darkest closet. Right. But no, she didn't. She decided to sit on the bus and not move. Well, well, who's inspired? That is heroism. (laughs) That was heroism. And yet the Rosa Parks story is a traditional heroine, you know, heroic story. Right. And I'm not saying that it isn't that Rosa Parks, Rosa Parks is also a hero. Yes. I don't want to. Right. right. We should absolutely. Well, and. And this is where we get into this dangerous ground of of um, doing pain Olympics and comparing and right, and right. not this isn't mm-hmm. a question necessarily of stolen valor here where it's a you know but at the same time it's yeah so how do we do it with trust how do we do it with uh, equanimity how do we do it with mm. without putting one over the other oh she was better right by recognizing that both of them came from communities right. And drew strength from their communities. And that if the issue wasn't as big as it was, Rosa Parks wouldn't have been able to stage it a second time, right? Because she wouldn't have been told to move. Sure. Yeah. And and sure. and it reinforced it. You know, it's not that what she did had no impact. It had a tremendous impact. But it's, again, this is all about optics, all about how far can right. we push the needle of this Overton window, right? How far can we push that Overton window here? People are okay with saying this elderly woman needs to have her seat on the bus. They're not going to say the same thing in 1955 about a pregnant teenager because there's so much prejudice Mm -hmm. there. Yeah. Yeah. Optics become incredibly crucial for women literal optics you know physical yeah, yeah. appearance and presence mm-hmm. and so forth we actually yeah. we had a question about that very thing which i found really fascinating concerning there i think that's actually a pretty good place to move into feedback so that we get back onto the story and less onto random american history <laughs> Fair enough. unless unless david has any more questions he wants to raise about who and what is there and how did she get there and you know, I, you know i'm just gonna bracket my because need of like why how and shouldn't have been this way and couldn't have you know she told us more about that i'm just gonna i'm gonna Mm -hmm. accept that i have those questions and i'm gonna accept that i don't have an answer in this book and that's this that's it (laughs) well Le Guin says the child who is our care the child we have betrayed is our guide she leads us to the dragon she is the dragon i like it so there's her answer she also admits in another place that she genuinely didn't know where the story was going to go from here. She That's genuinely fine. didn't know. She just knew that this is what had to happen. And that I can accept as, as well. Let's take a quick break. When we'll get back, we will do listener feedback. Yay. And we're back. We've got plenty of listener feedback tonight. Marilyn, you've been all on the interwebs collecting this feedback. Uh, (laughs) I think you deserve to respond to some of it since you've been reading our synopsis all night. So I'll do some reading here. This is from the Prancing Pony podcast Facebook page, if I am reading that correctly, uh, from Brianna. She says, 
working my way through Earthsea with you and the guys, Marilyn. Truthfully, Lorehounds is what brought me to Tolkien with y'all's Rings of Power coverage. Well, thanks for thanks for having us. And to be in so august a uh, company of the Prancing Ponies <laughs> Facebook oh, yeah. page to to have them have our have our name sung in those hallowed halls is a uh, absolutely kind of cool. I was it's listening to thrilling. the Prancing Pony when I first read the Silmarillion, so I uh, it's uh huh yeah it's full circle here. It's it's a good entrance in, and it just it it's great. Absolutely. From Lewis slash Tsunami, I'm not sure how this was submitted, but Lewis said. Oh, and I've been listening to and enjoying your Lorehounds episode on Tehanu while I've been traveling this week. I started listening back when you mentioned that you were doing the Earthsea books with them. I've stayed for the Star Wars. I like their level of analysis, banter, and occasional <laughs> deep dives. Well, thanks, Lewis. Good times. This 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 is fluff feedback. I mean, this is this is good. I could respond to yeah. this all day. <laughs> if I could pause just a second, too. I was thinking about to our our coverage range i was thinking about you know well if i say somebody in my family you know during the the holidays this week oh you know i i, I kind of avoid saying i have a podcast or you know yeah. part of a podcast uh, around because it's just such a and there's questions thing, you know? and it's a whole thing yeah yeah and then people are why aren't you watching this show or you should really cover that show and i'm like it's not what we're doing and even though we're focused a lot on television it feels like we're covering a lot of ground and I'm seeing these conversations that were coming from star Wars and then we're slipping over into the, into the MC universe and then we're diving down into earth sea and then we're wrapping back around, you know, to the white load, you know, all this, this sort of really unique intellectual ground, this, this, this uh, terrain that we're walking across. It's really interesting. Uh, and and to see these parallels or connectivities or having these different shows and books talk to each other uh, as we're working them and, and discussing them is, uh, yeah, it's not just, we're not just a TV reaction podcast. We're not just, right, uh, right. you know, it's it's not as simple as that, even though we kind of maybe thought it was, it's it's mm-hmm. kind of not. At this, it is and it isn't. It's a... You're right. Regardless of a, medium... Well, I- we would like to talk about great stories and also kaleidoscope. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You're <laughs> yes. going to say Marilyn. Well, I just, that I love David, the way that you have led the charge in that interconnectivity perspective. Have I led the charge? That, I did not. I know feel if I that way. Charge. I, okay. no, I, I feel as though, you know, it's more often than not, it, it's you who suddenly says, oh, this reminds me of this. Or, mm. yeah, when we talk about that, you, you're pulling out these themes from multiple sources. And and I just, that's really cool. I, my brain, I, I cannot, I'm, I'm deterministically driven by my brain. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, a charge led or not, uh, yes, that is, that is what we're doing here. Would you like to have more kudos said to you from Fur Elisa, who says, <laughs> excellent podcast, Marilyn and David, with shout outs to Davey Mack. I had to listen twice. Incredible insight as well. Can't wait to start chapter eleven to the end. We 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 got a we we got a lot of nice feedback. Oh, and and more from Furlisa yeah. actually. Those last two chapters, nine and ten, were intense, but you guys really brought it all together for me. Very insightful book nook. We yes, Furlisa has been around uh, since the beginning. She's OG listener. Furlisa listened to our demo when we were that's like, right. Us. That's right. That's right. 
From Danny, great podcast. I'm kind of liking that I read the whole thing a couple of months ago, and some of the details are already starting to blur. Got me thinking about it all over again. I could see Fair this enough. one blurring because it's very character focused and there's not a lot of big moments. It's more focused on the intimate moments, and that's great. Um, and I, I think it lends itself well to rereads, but I think that that's something that's going to fade in your memory a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, definitely worth rereading. Now, Lore Master Brian 8063 writes in with a lovely email here saying, Hi, Marilyn, John, and David. Hi, Brian. Thank Hello, you Brian. for a great answer to my question from last time. Very thought provoking. As I mentioned on the Discord channel, this book and discussion reveal my philosophical side. I studied philosophy and ethics in college before I moved on to history and library science. Brian does it all. Seriously. <laughs> Person after my own heart. Library <laughs> science. Gotta love it. Oh, yeah. In modern political history, I recall the famous Hillary Clinton episode in 1992 when her husband ran for president. In <laughs> California, Jerry Brown accused Bill Clinton of funneling money into his wife's law firm. Hillary later responded, I suppose I could have stayed home, baked cookies, and had teas. Oh, wow. That started a firestorm. I, sure I'm not familiar with this whole thing. Can someone in sure uh, it, was, it was massive. I, I hadn't been born yet, massive. to be clear. <laughs> and it, it called into question the whole the role of the of the first spouse, uh, mm-hmm. be, it, be it gentleman or, or lady, or mm-hmm. some someday maybe non-identified as such. Um, and there was this whole thing about, well, you get two for the price of one. You know, we got Hillary's going to lead this healthcare charge. And if you're not yeah. just electing just Bill, but you're getting Hillary away. Oh, it drove people insane. You want to talk about being a bonnet, lighting your hair on fire, et cetera, et cetera. People lost their proverbial shit. Right. There is a legitimate question of should a non-elected yes. official have, have power over things? That kind of role. But there's yeah. also like. Why does it make you so mad that she's taking on a project? I mean, they all take on projects, but they're all like they there's been a boundary, right? As I think people are more okay with it being a cultural project than a policy project. And that Hillary Clinton shifted that. What I find interesting is uh, we are currently recording just as people are, are publishing memorials about Rosalind Carter. Yeah. And the thread that I keep hearing is, she loved politics. Now I'm gobsmacked to hear that because I, I, re, you know, was consciously living through that whole presidency, and I never once got that impression. But her approach was rather different from what we're seeing here in mm-hmm. Hillary's, and it conformed. I mean, it's not sure. unlike what you were saying earlier, John, about the difference between the 15-year-old pregnant teenager and Rosa Parks. You know. Rosalind worked within the system, if you will. She wore a dress where Hillary wore pantsuits. She was quiet. She asked questions. She listened. But she was also profoundly influential. And Hillary Clinton was not going to do that. She wasn't going to be like that. And she was one at the forefront of pushing that forward to say, it's possible to loosen these constrictions, folks, and we will benefit from it. Right. Um, but wow, did she get stomped? Yeah, she sure did. She sure did. And uh, it's a shame. Do you ever you ever watch the drunk history episode about Woodrow Wilson's spouse? I, I can't recall her first name. Um, and she when he yes, had a stroke. Yes. We, we, we should look this up. Let's honor her. Woodrow 
Wilson, who had a lot of problematic things, but his wife apparently, um, no, best was Truman. Uh, his wife, when Woodrow had a stroke, I believe it was Edith. Uh, Edith Wilson actually would hold his hand and sign the documents and keep people out from seeing him and give orders from the president and really yes, like was the president that. for a little while, for a few months, I think. Goodness. Which is kind of crazy because that's 100 years ago, right? That's over 100 years ago. Right. Right. And yet people still saw women as, you know, the first lady is second you know, you can't do anything. Right. What that also says to me is what kind of an incredible goldfish bowl we've now plopped the presidency into. You know, that would have been impossible nowadays. It just yeah. would have been impossible. Yeah. You know, hiding Fed, hiding FDR's um, dependency on a wheelchair mm-hmm. yeah, would not right. have happened nowadays. And Couldn't and you, you didn't even have the 25th Amendment until after JFK, where right. you can remove the president based on the, the um, cabinet. Right. Well, anyway, that's a lot of politics we didn't need tonight. However, (laughs) Brian says, however, as you mentioned, a woman should be free to choose any path and not be judged. Judged. Agreed. As I read the book, I wondered why Le Guin portrayed Tehanu's face as burned. Perhaps this is one reason. Philosophy professor Sandra Lee Bartke wrote, The face of the ideally feminine woman must never display the marks of character, wisdom, or experience that we so admire in men. The experience of life literally scars Tehanu. It's Mm. breaking the old trope of a young woman, a beautiful young princess. In chapter 11, Tenar responds, people see the scars, but they see you too, and you aren't the scars. You aren't ugly. You aren't evil. You are through and beautiful. You are Theroux who can work and walk and run and dance beautifully in a red dress. I would love to hear your thoughts on why Le Guin gave Tahanu a burned face. Let's let's pause there and then we'll do the wrap up. Why why does she have a burned face? <laughs> Marilyn, did, do we have any writings you're, on that? Or? You're all looking at me. Yes, we are. <laughs> Quite intently, please. Um, Nothing specific, but I think it is pretty much what what Brian has said here, that classic femininity means that you are beautiful. You just don't hear about the ugly princess, at least not before the 90s, let us say. And it was was a marker in a way. Um, Some people might say it was a hint towards her quote-unquote true nature. And, you know, She's surrounded by images of fire. I have to think that, you know, with the the adults that she was living with, certainly would not have been model parents under any circumstances. But my headcanon is that she was a very wild child. She was powerful. It manifested in ways that frightened them. And that's why they attacked her. If she had been a, a, a you know, a beautiful, small, biddable child, um, maybe they wouldn't have raped her and beat her and thrust her in the fire to burn her. Um, and if you think about Aspen's response, what he says, you know, somebody should have finished, quote unquote, the work. And the sentence about um, Tiff, who was one of the farmhands, um, 
was pretty much like everybody who figured that what you looked like was a reflection of what you were like on the inside. Right. So for all of those reasons. And spark uh, recoils in horror. and Right. And, uh, and breaks uh, Tenar's heart by his refusal. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't even really get to pile in on child. Spark, but uh, anyway. Well, he was mentioned in one of the quotes that yeah. I read. But uh, yeah. And uh, Le Guin says after he's run the farm for a few years, he'll probably be fine. So it was just that he'd had, he hadn't really had true responsibility yeah. until that point. Yeah, although, anyway, although Tenar kind of pushes back on that, right? She she says. Oh, yes, she does. She's like, I, I think Ged maybe says, somebody says, you know, oh, well, he'll, he'll figure out once he... That, that he has to do all the chores, he'll figure out how to, you know, take care of himself. She goes, right. no, he won't. He'll get well, he'll some full woman to do it. That's, <laughs> right, a, that's what she right, says, some right. full woman. And, and she's kind of, I think, <laughs> talking woman. about her younger self a little bit, right? She's kind of digging at her younger mm-hmm. self, taking care of Possibly. Flint. Yeah. Possibly. But you have to remember, she's been, for over a year, she's been running the farm herself. Right. So decisions that she made is goha for you know those 25 years would be different from the decision she would make as Tenar now. There is something poetic too about them going back to uh, Ogion's house. Um, oh yeah. And 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 bringing that that around. So it was just kind of like yeah, fine have it. But it, also the injustice, the power injustice. Like dude, how do you have rights to this farm? It, it really did smack me in the face of like this is unfair, <laughs> you know. And she introduces it very early on in the story. She did. Yep. There's a and setup for it. And then we kind of forget about it until yeah. it's right there sitting at her table expecting her to feed her and wash the dishes afterwards. Right. Yeah. Expecting yeah. her to feed him and then wash the dishes afterwards. And he's known right. nothing else. And so this is just, he's just, That's right. he's in the spell. Was, was, was he a lesser man than his father? Right. He'd watched his father be served all of his life. And, right. Oh, and that sentence about, you know, she asks him a question and he refuses to answer it directly. And she's reminded that Flint did exactly the same thing right. to supposedly keep her in her place. And she thought it was a very poor kind of power. And she interrupts his whole narrative, his whole belief in the structure by just going, okay, cool. Bye. Yeah. No recrimination, no hateful fight, you know, no, nothing to go, well, fine. You know, screw you too. Slam the door, walk out. You know, there's nothing. She's just like, cool. Farm's yours. See ya. Well, not and and it's, he's so stunned and he's so shocked that that's going to reverberate in his head for a long time because he's not going to be able to. There's no answer in his culture for what she did. Mm-hmm. He has no way to answer the question with the language that he has. Yeah. Yeah. She does do a bit of storming in bed at night with Ged, which I think she had to, <laughs> you know, because, you know, she's just she now she's living in shame. Right. And she even compares it to him and says, okay, now it's my turn to be ashamed because my role as a mother was to bring right. up guilt, a in this good man. Right. And as, and as Le Guin says, how typical that the woman blames herself. Right. Instead of blaming a society that gives her son unearned power that doesn't teach him that with power comes responsibility. And and to bring back wait uh, wait Carol, power oh, responsibility oh my god Spider Man yeah. <laughs> all right so just to bring back to Carol Gilligan instead of Ben Parker a little bit um, <laughs> you know she talked a lot about how you know you talk to parents today you know male parents fathers today 
and they talk about their sons and they basically tell them like i want my son to be able to be himself right i want my son to be able mm. to you know not follow the patriarchal norms but then what happens is there's an initiation with peers and you mm -hmm. it's very hard to guide the initiation through peers it's just that's like that's my parental nightmare is how do i keep mm. my kids from being broken by others outside of my eyesight well perhaps says the person who's never raised children um by encouraging them to be themselves from the very beginning right by valuing and preferring their choices by pointing out to them that was a good idea you had i like that you like these things by encouraging it from the beginning so that when they do start interacting with peers they'll feel confident about being different because in some sense i think that's what you're talking about about standing against mm -hmm. a cultural norm that doesn't agree with the norms and values that you have already grown in yourself and that you as parents have been doing your best to inculcate in them. I remember somebody saying what something, the effect of, um, you know, they were talking about how strong willed and even willful their child was. And somebody saying, good, that means that they're less likely to be led astray by other people. Right. Well, my daughter is not getting led astray by anybody. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> no, from everything you said, I don't think you're going to have that problem oh, unless boy, something oh, radically boy. different happens. I have never met a more strong-willed person than my three-year-old. She sure, she sure knows how to lead me around a room. She brought me. She carried me up. It was her birthday, and she literally like grabbed my hand and was like, "We're going up, and we're going up to that big slide, <laughs> and you're going down it with me." <laughs> And uh, so that was my day yesterday. Anyway, Brian 8063's email wait, oh, we've now veered from for a very oh, wait, long John, time. But we have yes, to come David. back to David something. One more we, thing. Do, we do have to come okay, back to something. Okay, There's okay. so many things that we could come back to. Um, but we got to go back to this this question of, of uh, Tanar and, and the burn. And mm -hmm. um, apologies for my profanity here. For, sorry. Thank you, Tahanu. But apologies for my – I don't like to swear uh, – for swearing sake on our podcast so when i use it i, I use why the it. fuck not well that's why <laughs> some things uh, require swearing to, if nothing else to help reduce your blood pressure so i think she was fucking with the male gaze with yes. with uh with the burn yes. child right absolutely and she was she was just like I, we got to break the gaze right we it's the you know it's the external thing here it's it's just how do we disrupt it? How do we how do we check it so that it can start to question itself mm -hmm. and it right. can unwind itself? And and unfortunately, she you know she had to do it through not unfortunately but unfortunately for Theru <laughs> and 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 we have to be careful because of people who have experienced the similar things right and, right. and being mindful of that. But the fact that yeah she had to how do how does how is she in this story going to disrupt the male gaze? Well, and Le Guin says that Theru had nothing that would signify female femininity to the male culture. Yep. 
all of those things had been taken from her. And they all wanted and to I, avoid her or destroy her or, mm-hmm, or they mm-hmm. didn't know how to deal with her in ways. Aspen was just like, oh, right, that's Berman. Get you rid know. of her. Yeah. 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 And in order to reveal that visibly and actually marked on her body. Right. It became the face because what's the first thing you look at when we see someone coming that's towards how we us? Judge. We, and well, that's how we you would judge. Face. Yeah. And that's how you would judge a wife in, in that particular Absolutely. Uh, uh, Northern European cultural model that she's using to to tell this story mm-hmm. from, mm-hmm. even though these are, you know, brown skinned people or not, not pale skinned people. Right. You are what you look like. Right. Well, Brian concludes his email by saying, thanks for keeping up with the books, the book discussions. Your television and movie coverage is fantastic, but everyone takes it up a notch when discussing books, never <laughs> without a bro- book. Brian8063. Well, thanks, Brian. I, I have a lot of fun talking about books. We're, we're kicking around an idea of maybe doing a Christmas book. Um, and I know the book nook is definitely not going to end with Earthsea. I'm sure that we have projects. We're, we're deciding what to cover next. I think we're between a few things, but we'll let you know. Thank you so much, Brian. Great question, as always. Indeed. All right. Time for an outro, everyone. David, what are we doing? And what's what are our affiliates doing? What are our affiliates doing? Uh, Alicia on the Wool Shift Dust podcast has been covering the Beacon 23 Hugh Howey adaptation that is currently playing on MGM Plus, which has been several other things. And um, not sure when it finishes up. So what they might have just finished the podcast with that relative to the time that we're recording this. And her and Luke are also getting back into their Dune coverage. We've got a date for March 1st for the second Villeneuve Dune film. And so they're going to try to match their coverage. They're doing like a 360 big picture of Dune and all its permutations and, and uh, (laughs) incarnations. And then I know her and Abby were covering the beacon 23 book on the book podcast. And then they're also going to be steaming ahead on the rest of the, I think, Shift and Dust in the Woolship Dust uh, series of books. So she's got a lot cooking over there, and she's got more things in the works. We're just waiting for dates and some other things to resolve. For Anthony and Steve, they are covering Severance right now, season one. They're doing a season one recap. And then once we have a date for season two, the four of us are going to pile in and do a episode by episode recap. And that is going to be a good fun. I think should be uh, many laughs uh, will be had, but we're just waiting for a date for season two, but you can catch up on season one. Now, every Fridays, those episodes are dropping and will have dropped. We also will have uh, dropped a, the um, star Wars holiday, 1978 holiday special podcast, uh, probably prior to to this coming out so definitely go check that out if you're into the star wars things because i kind of think that the holiday special should be required viewing for any star wars fan it is singular in nature it is a disaster and i love every minute of it (laughs) as long as i can keep my earplugs in for any time the wookiee family is (laughs) shrieking i don't know what it was but the the timbre of 
their voices. I, I just couldn't. It was terrible. I just it was couldn't. Sh- oh, it's I awful. really couldn't. You, you're going to. I guess I'll just have to forward pass. You're going to need to. Oh, the Wookiees are there for the whole time. I'm going to be honest with you. They they are oh, okay. they are the thing you keep coming back to in the right. But it's show. the first 10 minutes or so that it is pr- egregious. Yes. And when Itchy and true. Lumpy are. are and, and, uh, <laughs> oh, Lumpy. Lumpy's my favorite. He's got human teeth. Instead of yes. ju- instead of Wookie fangs for some reason, and it looks like he has veneers. Like it's just, it's absolutely ridiculous. Just there, it's on YouTube. Look up Star Wars Holiday Special. Come listen to the podcast. We had a blast with Stephen Anthony. I, I, yeah, it's it's one of the funniest podcasts I think we've recorded. Great. Well, I think it's time to do some Patreon shoutouts. Quick, we have a Patreon where you can get early and ad free access to our podcasts. You can get. Bonus stuff like Second Breakfast. The last one was two hours and 45 minutes because we're insane. We talk about all the things we love and we talk about the things that we're not covering and video games and and movies, writers strikes and movies. And oh, my, we're going to do a Christmas movie for December. And uh, you can actually catch the December Second Breakfast on the public feed where we'll be ranking our um, our top 10 shows of the year. If you want to vote in that, you have to sign up for the Patreon. So definitely uh get on the patreon if you want to be part of that polling and you want to have some fun with us on on our pooling of who did what right this year all right now i'm <laughs> rambling we're two hours and 15 minutes in here are our lore masters or top tier patrons who get a shout out on every podcast as part of their benefits some martian cyrus mark h michael g michelle e david w brian p nick w sc peter oh Bettina W, Adam S, Nancy M, Lavinia T, Duve 71, Brian 8063, Frederick H, Sarah L, Garrett C, Eric F, Matthew M, Sarah M, DJ Miwa, Andra B, Kwang Yu, Laura G, Dead Eye Jedi Bob, Nathan T, Alex V, Aaron T, Sub Zero, Aaron K, and Adrian, who will always be last on the list, apparently. <laughs> he wants it so. All right. Indeed. This was a blast. I'm so glad we got to close out the year with Tahanu and that we can start fresh in the new year with the additional books of Earthsea. Which one are we doing first? Do we know? Tales of Earthsea comes first. Tales of Earthsea. And we can talk about if we want to do them all or we just pick some. I'm doing them all. Because I, be- I believe it's a series of short stories, right? Some might qualify as novellas. No, Okay. I think it it, it might be fun to to rope in some of our other cohorts. Co- 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 Hosts for uh, a shot or two, but yeah, we'll we'll do some planning sure. and, and we'll we'll work out some formatting for it. Very Sounds cool. Good. All right, it's been fun. We will see you all in the new year. Thanks, folks. The Lorehounds podcast is produced and published by the Lorehounds. You can send questions and feedback and voicemails at thelorehounds.com/contact. Get early and ad-free access to all Lorehounds podcasts at patreon.com/thelorehounds. Any opinions stated are ours personally and do not reflect the opinion of or belong to any employers or other entities. Thanks for listening. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. 
Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. <laughs>